Loss helps us define our lives. By allowing our grief to matter, we discover our own strengths and embrace our authentic selves. Welcome to Good Grief with your host, Cheryl Jones. Get ready to be inspired to create a deeper life to make your time on Earth much more meaningful. Now, here is Cheryl Jones. Hello, this is your host, Cheryl Jones, and I want to welcome you to Good Grief, where we talk each week about the transformations that can come from loss. Today, I welcome Paul Link. Paul's an actor, director, writer, and ordained minister. He's been involved in grief support since kindergarten when his teacher asked him to explain a classmate's death to the class. Best known for his role as Artie Grossman on the NBC TV hit series Chips, Paul's made a living as an actor for 40 years. When his first wife, Francesca Draper, died of breast cancer in 1986 at the age of 37, Paul found himself a widower and the sole surviving parent to their three children. In response to this life-changing event, Paul wrote Time Flies When You're Alive, a one-man play filmed for an HBO showcase production, nominated for a Cable Ace Award, and performed in the U.S. and Europe for 25 years. He's been happily remarried for over 27 years to the beautiful and talented Christine Healy, with whom he fathered a fourth child, Lily. A published author, Paul lives in Los Angeles, where he volunteers at Our Our House, a grief support center in West L.A., and you can reach him at linklink, that's L-I-N-K-E-L-I-N-K, 1948, at AOL.com. Welcome, Paul. Hi, sure. How are you today? I'm well today, and I'm looking forward to this. I think there's a, uh, you know, there's nothing like um, sharing a common experience. And of course, as someone who lost a spouse when I had children still at home, and uh, and it being quite a while ago, I feel some commonality with you. And I'm really looking forward to to talking with you today. My pleasure. I have to start with the obvious thing. How did your teacher? think when you were five that you would be able to explain your classmate's death that really stood out to me uh in your in your biography well i put that in there specifically for you because i knew you would relate to that and uh i was in uh, forest hills uh, in queens at my kindergarten school and um miss burger Great Mrs. Berger, for some reason, was very fond of me, and I, I don't know, I really don't know, except perhaps she felt I had a certain maturity at that age that I would be mm-hmm. able to help the other kids to make sense of it. I mean, when you think about it now, it sounds completely insane, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I don't know if she saw something in me that... I, I don't really know. I still have a book she gave me at the end of the year you know, because I was a very special student to her. So there was something in me that she saw. And uh, it's interesting in life, I've often found myself in, and I bet this has happened to you and other people who have had the death of a spouse, but you find yourself in a environment, a new place with people you don't know, and you wind up in a conversation with someone who shares that kind of experience with you. It's like we find each other. Absolutely. In fact, um, you know, I I spend a lot of time just following my nose on the internet to find people, and and even when they don't 
um, directly say that they've had a big loss experience, I kind of can smell it a little bit. Um, I, I right. later find out, oh, that's that's what I'm feeling when when I'm interacting with what they do in the world that they've right. they faced up to some kind of loss. But it was also interesting that that one um, detail in terms of uh, something something I think, which is that we we kind of can can piece together a story of how we prepare to deal with big loss. Um, and that leads us to, you know, the 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 loss we're here to talk about, the loss of your first wife. Could you tell people a little bit about her and about um, that time in your life? Sure. Uh, I met Francesca in 1976 at a party in Laurel Canyon. And uh, as I say in my show, uh, she was a comet of light. And mm. um, it was, you know, a very cursory meeting, but I was going to the last waltz, which was a big concert in 1976 on Thanksgiving day in San Francisco. that was going to feature all these great musicians to celebrate the end of the band, the famous group that back yes, in there. I remember them together. well. <laughs> okay. So uh, I went to that and I asked her if she wanted to go, but we had just met. She had plans for Thanksgiving, but I knew at the end of that concert when Dylan said, stay forever young. I, I, I can't tell you, I had this moment, this epiphany, and I recognized that when I got back to L.A., when I drove back down, I would uh, pursue her, uh, that, you know, that comet of light was my future. And we were both sort of hippies of the 60s who found each other in the 70s, got married, and became parents and adults in the 80s. And then we had, uh, she was a very natural uh, person. She, we had all of our children at home, with a midwife, which was something I had never even dreamed of doing. I never even knew there was such a thing as home births. But uh, she taught me a lot about um, female and the woman and and the role of men and women. And Uh she helped make me a man, as my mother said to her on her deathbed. Thank you for helping to make Paul a man. And um, in 84, she was a musician and um, she was going to do a concert because she'd had our second child and was... um, had given up her career pretty much, and I was working on television, so I produced a concert for her, which was her turned out to be her last concert. And so shortly after that, she was diagnosed uh, in early '84 with breast cancer. It was a very aggressive kind. She decided that uh, she believed in her own body's immune system and felt that she could, with the proper diet and proper supplements um, and proper mental approach, uh, that she could take it on. And she wanted to. She wanted to make her body defeat the disease. She did not believe in chemotherapy. She didn't believe in putting poison around to deal with snails. So, so that was a more radical approach then, wouldn't you say? Then say that, I'm sorry, ask me that say that one more time. That that was a more radical approach at that time, perhaps, than uh than I, now. I think so and as I look at it now, I think now the scientists are trying to figure out how to get the immune system to do the job. But uh, anyway, it didn't work. Her cancer was way too aggressive. And, of course, in the middle of it all, um, she got pregnant with our third child, Rose. And then it became, you know, a question of the, when she found out she was pregnant, she was already four and a half months pregnant because she didn't think it was possible to get pregnant in the middle of all this craziness. And she um, opted to have the baby. It was the only choice she saw uh, as, a, as, the, as the right move for her. 
And, um, you know, it was interesting because in those last months when we were talking, all the truths were coming out. And, you know, she said all these all this time I was praying to God for a miracle. And I always assumed that the miracle was my healing. But I recognize now that we got our miracle and the miracle mm. was Rose. And mm. uh, I can proudly say that six weeks ago in your neck of the woods up in Oakland, uh, in Piedmont Park, I walked that young miracle down the aisle, and um, Chex was around. He was in the ethers and uh, smiling. Paul, that's amazing because um, I live a block from the Piedmont line. I know that park very well. Yeah, uh. it's uh, where they wanted to be wet because she lived up on a street called Peacefield or Warfield. Pardon me. She called mm. it Peacefield. It was, she lived on <laughs> Warfield, and uh, they'd spent a lot of time in that park. And it was beautiful. They did a wonderful job. It was a great day. So, uh, of course, I'm, I'm really uh, connected to your story in it. She was obviously a very dynamic, creative, talented person. That's very obvious to me. Yes, yes. Um, and, and quite um, clear about what she wanted at all these various points in, of course, kind of a risky environment, having cancer and all that. I wondered the whole way through your piece, uh, I wanted to hear more about whether it was hard to get on board with what she wanted ever. You you did say, you know, it's not, for instance, home birth. You wouldn't, you didn't even know what it was, you know, Um, all these points at which she was making pretty radical choices and you were, uh, as a loving partner, supporting her. But was that ever hard to come to for you as um, I'm sure there was fear involved and, and all the rest? I believed in her. I, I don't know how to stress it enough. I, I, I believed in her. Um, when we were first together, she had an ovarian cyst. Now, I'm not an MD. I don't know much about it, but I, I, took, a, uh, I took her. Uh, she wasn't from L.A. She was from New York and via Colorado. So... Uh, through my dad, uh, I took her to a high-powered doctor in Toluca Lake, and uh, you know, he said you need to have surgery. And she said, "Well, you know, we're supposed to go on our honeymoon." He said, "Oh, well, we'll do the surgery after the honeymoon." So we're driving home, and she looks at me. She says, "Now wait a minute. He wants me to have surgery. That's a radical thing. But I can still go on my honeymoon. I, this doesn't compute for me. I will cure this." So she went about with herbs and um, and uh, and this glass thing that she would shine on her abdomen (laughs) and uh, to the sun. And I watched her. And when we went back to the doctor after her honeymoon, it was gone. Mm. So I kind of felt like she had problems over her own body. It was hers. And and I I believed in her. So when she had a milk cyst, when she was nursing our first son, Jasper, she treated it with comfrey leaves and hot pads and meditation. And it went away. So when she had the cyst, what we thought was a milk cyst when she was nursing our second child, Ryan, you know, I, again, I figured she was going to cure it. It just didn't go away. Now that's when the rubber hit the road. And I kept saying, don't you think you should see a doctor about this? I mean, this is not right. Shouldn't it? And, you know, and, you know, unfortunately by the time she did get to the doctor, it was just too late. Mm. You know, and then, so, but then conversely, um, she might not have done, what they would have recommended 
had they discovered it earlier? Is that a is, yeah, is that an apt you know, understanding? I think late, as I rec- it's possible because late in the game we went. She finally threw up her hand and said, "Okay, let's go see the doctor." So we went to a doctor in I don't even remember where this was. It was, but we I'll never forget this. So we she's had a mastectomy because she did have the mastectomy. It was just you know the adjuvant treatment they wanted to do that she didn't want to do. Yes. And uh, so she said, "Okay, now that Ro- Rosie's out, I'll do whatever we have to do." So we go to this place in the valley. That's all I remember. And I will never forget this because we were sitting in the room and uh, it was as if the people outside were saying, you got to see this freak show that's going on in here. Because we were with a baby and she was, you know, had her top off and had no one breast was missing. And people were kind of coming in and, and like, I'll never forget that kind of peering like and then going out and then new people would come in. And uh, that was our last even attempt to get, you know, her involved with the MDs. It just, you know, wasn't until later in life and we needed to set up hospice once we were told by the clinic in Tijuana that it was, you know, fate complete, that the cancer was in her lungs and it was, you know, that she wasn't going to make it, which was in the beginning of 86. And then we began the process of, you know, preparing for her departure. Mm which was the most profound thing I've ever been through in my life. I can agree with you. And you're also really reminding me, we, uh, my wife and I adopted a child uh, went very far into her illness, which was an incurable illness. Um, and a lot of our friends even <laughs> looked at us pretty crazy. Right. Uh, but, Did you uh, but, feel in the... <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I was going to ask Go you ahead. in those days you felt a little, little bit like you were rehearsing for the future. There was that aspect sometimes. Uh, it, mm-hmm. It's kind of paradoxical, isn't it? Because I've never felt so grounded in the present. And yet another part of me was also preparing for some future time. Uh, right, kind of right. both at once is what I would say. Yeah, but that... Yeah, um, yeah, that that kind of fierce forward living. Um, that's why I love the title of your play, "Time Flies When You're Alive," uh, because you know I'm certainly more alive since her death than I was before, uh, right. but maybe not quite as keenly alive as I was during the period of her illness. Right. It was so uh, well, I so said, intense. I said that line. I said that line to Francesca one day when I was sitting with her and she came to and I looked at her and I said, time flies in your life. And we laughed. And, you know, I didn't intend it to be a title of anything at that moment of a play, sure. no play intended. We were just living our life, but it, it sort of fortunately hung around to this one that I remembered. So when I came time to do it, you know, I could use it as a title. And uh, I remember very specifically uh, Jasper's sixth birthday. Um, no name dropping here, but my dear friend John Ritter uh, had arranged for us all to go to Disneyland because um, Jason and Jasper, Jason is John's uh, oldest, uh, and, J- and Jasper born a day apart and we're very close friends. And uh, so we were all going to go to Disneyland. Of course, Francesca couldn't go. And John rented a, like a bus to take us all. There were about 12 kids and uh i remember sitting on the bus and looking at all those couples you know our couple friends our community and it was clear to me that i was 
going to be doing this on my own for a while. <laughs> it was it was right. like a rehearsal. It was so weird. And yeah. uh, but as you say, you know, living in the moment, but being very aware that around the corner something was going to be real different. Right. You know, we're almost ready for a break, but uh, I I want to quote something I read in an in an interview of you that really made me laugh, and um, I'd like to come back to it when 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 the when the break's over. Uh, sure. It, I I know that you your series ended right as this was happening, and then you said. Yes. Um, my agent dropped me because he didn't think I'd be funny anymore. Well, that, yeah. that I, I had no sense of humor before that time in my life. And so the idea that you couldn't be funny having gone through something like that was pretty <laughs> preposterous from my point of view. <laughs> Things had never been funnier, to, to be truthful. So, <laughs> um, and I and I feel I you know I think I heard that in your in your play as well like it's, there's there's humor in it as well as of course pain and and all the rest yes well I always wanted people to know there was humor in it so when we put out the very first press release about it we put at the bottom widows uh, pardon me widowers half off <laughs> yeah yeah and we the L A Times put it in the paper, you know, widowers half off. And believe it or not, this is what's so strange is widows called to complain that it was sexism. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my gosh. I'm sure there's more to say about, about all that. Let's, let's come back to that when we, when we're done with the break and listeners, you can find links to my website and social media, the good grief page at voice America. And there's also an ad at the top to uh, link to my new novel, An Ocean Between Them. I would love to know what you all think about it out there. And to find Paul Link, you can go to Link Link, that's L-I-N-K-E-L-I-N-K 1948 at AOL.com. Be back soon. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. Today's woman faces a stressful world when it comes to staying healthy. We are bombarded by media messages with contradicting ideas about fitness and nutrition. We need to keep our diet, relationships, and stress in check. It's time to get the right message and have the most fun. Join hosts Andrea Beeman, Lisa Lutan, and Michelle Fenighouse for Healthy View Radio. It's health and happiness in one show every Thursday at noon Eastern Time and 9 a.m. Pacific Time on Voice America Health and Wellness. What sets apart VoiceAmerica.tv from the other video content providers on the Internet? Choice and flexibility means that you can host your video content live or on demand on the main VoiceAmerica.tv channels through your own branded media player or your own private TV channel. We support multiple media formats, so all of your video content can be in one place. We offer a number of advertising and video packages. For more information, visit VoiceAmerica.tv. If you think you've seen online TV like this before, let us surprise you. Relationship issues? Anxious? Parenting challenges? No more. Learn how to live your best life. Tune into Straight Talk 
with top psychotherapist, relationship, and anxiety expert, Sandra Reich. In this program, you'll learn how to transform your challenges into effective solutions, whether it's relationships, parenting, anxiety issues, or other life traps that you struggle with. Sandra will show you how to change them and how to live the life of your dreams. Listen every Thursday afternoon at 6 p.m. Eastern Time and 3 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1 866 472 5792. That's 1 866 472 5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back. This is your host, Cheryl Jones, and I've been talking with Paul Link about the death of his wife, Francesca, and the play and book he created out of that experience. And Paul, before the break, we were just talking about uh, how how many humorous moments can come into what most people uh, imagine is going to be a very humorless um, experience. And I so resonated with, with that. The the kind I've never laughed so hard as some of the moments that I had, but I but I am um, curious because I don't remember laughing a whole lot the first couple of years after her diagnosis. She was sick for ten years, uh, and it wow. just got it got funnier and funnier to be <laughs> to be frank, <laughs> you know. So <laughs> I was wondering if maybe the you know the kind of connection you had to humor previous to that experience helped you uh, find it in those moments or was it something else that allowed you to see that part of the experience? Well, I think that we always had that, you know, we had something called simpatico Mm. and you know, it, it was beyond the fact that we loved each other. We were really on the same wavelength, had the same values, and really had the same humor. And laughter was always key for us throughout our relationship. And um, as I was telling you off air, you know, when we uh, when we were doing the hospice thing, um, I remember specifically an afternoon where she was crying really hard. And I was crying equally as hard. I mean, we were just deeply in grief. By the way, sidebar, grief doesn't begin when somebody dies. Let's just Indeed. say that out now. Well, since we're, this is about grief, let's make sure we don't forget yes. about that. Yes, amen stuff. to that. But amen anyway, to that. It, it, it just, you know, and, and so we were in the, whatever you want to call it, pre-grief, early grief. But uh, and we just suddenly stopped, the two of us, sobbing and looked at each other and just burst into laughter. Because we both caught ourselves, you know, taking ourselves so very seriously, which is understandable considering the circumstances. But there was an irreverence that we always sort of had that that saw us through things. And humor was always a part of it. And that's why I wanted, in Time Flies When You're Alive, the play, 
That's why there are certain things that I talk about, because I know they're going to get people to laugh. The whole thing about colonics and trying to be pure, you know, and, and, and Tijuana and, and all that stuff, you know, was, and my, some of my cryptic chips comments, you know, how I'd always prayed as a young actor, I'd always prayed to, you know, one day be on a hit television series for five years. And I like mm. to say, if only I had prayed to be on a quality hit television series. But no, I was on chips, which, you know, now I look back on it, it's sort of all the same, but at the time, you know, again, it seemed like. Well, and that's, uh, that's interesting because of course the one man show you wrote, and I know you've written another one too, which I saw part of, uh, it's time. We'll get to that in a minute, but, um, uh, you know, that is so. Uh, deep and transparent and and vulnerable uh, as I guess in a when you choose what to do it seems as if that's the direction you go uh, and I've wondered I wanted if to that- tell the truth I really wanted people to you know the time flies was born out of a need and I think many people who have experienced the death of a loved one uh, have that need to tell the story you know, when people came in that afternoon to be with the body after she died and to sit with her for the few hours that we had her here before, you know, they took her away. Um, you know, I wanted everyone to know this is where she was laying and this is where the oxygen was. And, and that's where the, the hospice nurse was standing. So in my mind, the images were like was like solidifying in, in, into memories before we'd even wheeled her out of the house. And I had this desire to tell people what had happened, you know, what, because maybe it was my way of trying to make sense of it. I mean, I feel so blessed to have had that show and so blessed to have had the three children because it didn't allow me the time to, as I say, wallow in the mire. There was no time for that. What's for breakfast, dad? Yes. Yes. You know, that's what it all was about. Moving forward, I had responsibilities. I had to carry my sadness with me, but I didn't have time to, like, dive into it. I, and instead, I was able to channel it into this play that I didn't even know was going to be a play. I had no idea. I mean, literally, the play was born out of my desire to tell the story and the first little bit of it I did, I, I didn't even tell anyone I was doing it because I was scared that it, would, that, I was, that it really wasn't a play there. You know, my friend, Mark Travis, his brilliant director, had come to see, to the eulogy, to the memorial. And when he heard my eulogy, based on that, he said, you should do a one-man show because of the way mm. you look at this stuff. Mm. And so then over the next year, we'd have chicken Caesars at every restaurant you can imagine. Say, yeah, we got to do that show one day. And then we'd never do anything. And then mm. finally I said, I got to do this. I really got to do this. And I did a little piece. And I'll never forget it because when I finished, and it was just a story of taking the ashes to Mount Shasta and scattering them. And then, you know, me turning and looking at my son and saying, Ryan, you got your mother all over your shoes, you know. And, and yes. Realize, and then I walked off stage. It was I'll never forget. It was silence in a way that I went, oh, my God, this is terrible. I, I'm so glad I did this. This is not a play. This is horrible. And I walked outside, at which point this guy came up and said, my best friend died eight years ago. I realized I've never dealt with it. And I look at him. I go, holy shite. 
I was looking for a whole other response. I'm an actor. I'm, I want to laugh. I want applause. I just maybe was working in a whole other level, a whole other place. And, uh, and then somebody else came out and said, I'll produce your play. Well, there was no play, but I said, okay, we'll take six Wednesdays, beginning on what would have been actually coming up on October 14th, 1987 was the first performance. And it would have been our uh, ninth wedding anniversary. Mm-hmm. I think it was a loaded night. Why not do Profound. it? Yeah, and, <laughs> kind of all goes you know, together. And, I had, and again, the miracle of it all was I did it. I had no script. People came up to me afterwards and said, you know, what they said. John Ritter came up and he said, this is your Mark Twain. You'll do it the rest of your life. I'll do anything I can to help you with it. I don't even know what it was. And then the next Wednesday, because I only did it six Wednesdays originally, and then uh, the LA Times came the second week and Sylvie Drake wrote a review that cha- basically changed my life and then it sold out for a year and then everything else kind of followed it. It was kind of an incredible tidal wave. What what also occurs to me is that uh, you know as I was watching it, I've I've done a lot of thinking and some interviews about are there really differences in the way that men and women grieve, and of course yes. there aren't uh, uniform differences. But when I was watching your play, it was so so vulnerable. I couldn't remember too many times when I had seen a man express grief so openly. And I wonder if that's what the man who came up to you after was responding to, that you were giving him permission. That's a really great question. I, I, I'm going to have to ask him. I don't know. I mean, I don't know. Because, you know, that, what I said was, you know, I met my future in Adore at a party in Laurel Canyon. She was a comedy of light named Francesca Draper, and that's all I remember. <laughs> I used it for the beginning of my play. Uh, I do know that we started out, I said, the first thing I got to do is read her obituary. Because I, I, I don't want this to be a play about will people, will she or won't she make it. I want people to know from the top that she didn't, that she died. Yeah. And that sets a tone. And then I in the process of developing it, because I developed these plays in front of an audience, so sometimes it takes a little time, but um, I developed the whole, um, what I call the pre-ramble, which is structurally, I read the obituary and then I trace the history of our relationship from meeting her to saying goodbye to her, and then I go into the play. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of how it goes. And um, I don't know, that's a very interesting question, Cheryl. I'm going to have to ask Mark next time I talk to him. Well, it just, um, I mean, I i really um, appreciate um, men who grief, grieve openly. Just, I think it helps, it helps us in the world. Well, I think it's important. <laughs> you know? I think, to be honest with you, I feel very proud of the fact I didn't, as a younger man, <laughs> I think it made me feel weak. Uh, that I was uh, in touch with my emotions or, or that feminine part of myself. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I think the world would be a lot better place. You know, in, in grief support, it's almost all female. Uh, I, I mean, I go, I, I, I have two different co-leaders that I work with at our house. They're both women. Uh, there are a few men around, but not much. You know, when I not, sit in the room, it's usually... There may be 10 people and maybe maybe one other guy, maybe. 
Yeah, you know, I, it's interesting because there's a there's a guy up here near me in San Francisco, uh, Ned Buzzkirk, and he does a show a couple times a month called "You're Going to Die," and I've gone to a few of them. I've interviewed him a couple times, and he reliably cries at every performance on on stage. Right, and right. it's it's so it shouldn't be remarkable, you know, <laughs> but it does strike me as somewhat remarkable and um, healing from the outside, yeah. you know. I, I mean, Time Flies in Your Life for sure was a healing for me, for sure. It was, I mean, as I said earlier, I was so fortunate to have that show as a place, you know, in Ward's tasks of grief, the fourth task is to establish a lifelong connection with your dead person. And uh, I didn't even know that's what I was doing, but I was doing it. Well, that's an By interesting way, point because she was so alive in it. I mean, I Did felt as if time? I met her. I, I, I said she was so alive to me in it. I felt as if I had met her. Good. That was my, always my goal was to bring her to life. I never showed, I mean, and if you see the uh, photograph of the, hard copy of the book, her pictures on the book, but I never showed anyone her picture because I wanted them all to have her in their minds as they saw her. Absolutely. You know, here's an interesting thing, or I think it's interesting, but the the show was so successful besides all the other stuff, you know, the HBO and all that. But I, I was on a national television show and uh, albeit I was not the beefcake, you know, I was the overweight comic relief, but I'd go into the mail room occasionally and I'd see the sacks of mail for Eric Estrada and I'd see the sacks of mail for Larry Wilcox. And I'd go to my little cubby hole and there'd be like three letters for me, you know, <laughs> I go, oh, okay, well, you know, we, at least I, I'm not going to, this isn't going At to least you head, got three, huh? That's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And then so I do I did Time Flies. So I did it that first Wednesday. The next Wednesday, I'm at the theater getting ready to go on, and a stranger walks in and says, walks up to me and hands me a letter and walks out. And I go, Wow, that was kind of weird. So I read it and it's a fan letter for the, he had seen the show and had to write me. Well, my point is, I was on a national television show watched by millions and millions and millions and millions of people. I did this performance for 25 years in different cities and all that stuff. I have boxes of letters. It's phenomenal. Hundreds. Hundreds of people felt the need after seeing the show to write to me personally, to share with me their grief, their loss, their this, their that. And I I so thrilled by that that meant means as much to me as anything because it means that i actually touched people in a real way and it's interesting to me because i you know i have this uh belief that that these things that we have to do out of grief they just make us do them have a tremendous power and that's what you're speaking to, that the, that the yes. authenticity of that, there's no pretense in it. You just have to do it. And, and exactly. I think that does have, that does touch people and move people. Yeah, because they recognize it. You know, it's, um, 
my theory, I came up with this weird thing. I call it the uh, pit boss theory of life. You know who the pit boss is? You ever been to Vegas? Mm, uh-huh. Okay, the pit, the pit <laughs> boss. Not too often, but a few the, times. <laughs> well, the pit boss, you know who he is, right? He's the guy that basically sits up in a room and sees all the screens that show everything that's going on in the casino. So he can keep an eye that everyone is playing legit, legitimately and, you know, that everything's fair and on the up and up. He's the pit boss. And I realized during Time Flies that, you know, um, we all as players think that God has dealt us unique hands, that we have to keep our hands close to our chest, that we can't reveal our hands. And I think what I've learned doing the show is that um, we, we all have a much more in common than we're led to believe. And that if we could be that pit boss for any moment and look down at all the cards that are being played, we'd see a commonality that we're all playing the same hands kind of. And the reality is when you tell the truth to an audience, they recognize it because they just know it. They know it in themselves. So it resonates. Uh, that, that, that's really a great image for it. Um, you know, I can't, I can't, uh, we're about to go to break, and I can't, I can't right. let you go without us talking about long-range grief, uh, mm-hmm. and, and that, and that links with uh, your more recent work, um, uh, you know, your, your, your recent play, um, right. it's time, um, because uh, the stamp of having gone through your early experience is all over that, and yet it's now. And I, I really want to talk about that because it's something that impacts me a lot. I'm also remarried, so uh, I want to get your thoughts about well, that. Um, good. So during the break, folks, you can go to my website, weatherandgrief.com. You can go to the Good Grief host page. Uh, you can reach Paul at... Link Link, L I N K E L I N K, 1948 at AOL.com. And we'll be back after the break. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Ready to transform your health and your world? Join host Melissa Alexander for Insight Living with Vitality. Melissa and her guests go behind the scenes on what it takes for practitioners and clients to transform themselves and others. She provides insight to medical procedural breakthroughs, available product resources, and explains lifestyle choices designed to improve and expand your vitality. It's time to get rid of that baggage, remove those blockages, and prevent buildup from hindering your progress in life. Tune in every Monday at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, 7 a.m. Pacific time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Healthcare has been a major part of news stories today with one thing that has been consistent, inconsistency. Both healthcare providers and patients have to work around and get used to a constantly changing set of rules and issues. Nurses have historically been left out of this decision-making. Listen to Once a Nurse, Always a Nurse, exploring the world of nursing with host Leanne Meyer. Health professionals, we invite you to share your ideas and experiences while listening to experts in various areas of nursing. Listen Mondays at 1 p.m. Eastern, 10 a.m. Pacific on Voice America Health and Wellness. Explore the power of natural healing with Howard Strauss. Join us each week for an informative program that will help you learn effective healing methods using natural remedies. Howard's guests include top researchers, authors, and experts who will share their views on a variety of natural products and healing methods that really work. 
Tune in to The Power of Natural Healing with Howard Strauss, Mondays at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1 866 472 5792. That's 1 866 472 5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back to Good Grief. I'm here with Paul Link. And uh, before the break, Paul, we were. Uh, Moving on to talk about uh, It's Time, your your newer play. And I was interested to read that um, you sort of felt it was time to write a play with your second wife as at the heart of it. Um, and, you, well, you know, it, it was interesting to me because I've been remarried for, you know, 21 years plus. And, uh, and I work in grief. I'm, I'm rather immersed in grief, honestly. And sometimes I think about how that must be for my current wife, that I'm very immersed in work that came out of my relationship with my first wife. And so right. I wondered what, that, what that's like for you in your, in your life. Well, what happened was, I'll tell you very specifically, on, um, I can even tell you the date, <laughs> October 14th. <laughs> Uh, 2012, I did the 25th anniversary performance of Time Flies in Your Life at the Ruskin Group Theater here in Santa Monica. And it was a profound night. And, you know, I, I only did it twice the night before, pay what you could rehearsal and, you know, the benefit for the theater that, that on the 14th. And Christine, who's by, by trade an actress, although retired now, but a, a great theater person, uh, was of course there to support me, and you know it was grand night. You know, people, the everything, all the compliments. So we're home at, in the kitchen, and I'm um, sitting there, standing there, actually leaned against the counter, and I look at Christine, and I suddenly realized that uh, it sounds odd, but that we had been together all this time, and she had raised our children. And she had giving, given me everything and a fourth child, Lily. And I suddenly looked at her and as supportive as she was and has always been about time flies when you're alive and as understanding as she was, I just sort of felt like, wait a minute, I need to let go of that now. I need to focus on doing a show about her because it's time. <laughs> <laughs> and and basically, I started to put together, I went, okay, you see, I did a show, I've written up six one-man shows. My second one-man show was originally called Life After Time, and it was also called Au Pair Despair, which was the subtitle. And basically, it was about being a widower and, and, and moving forward, you know, part two, so to speak. Right. But at the time, I hadn't really fully lived it because in doing it, and even when I finally opened it officially at the Pasadena Playhouse in, I think it was 1990 or 91, I had basically just 
met Christine. So mm-hmm. I could allude to her, but we didn't have, there was no more than, an, you know, potential. Well, 27 years later, or whatever it was last year when I opened it, um, it, it she's my life. You know, it's like, I'm so lucky. Twice mm-hmm. in a lifetime, I found a soulmate. And when I talked earlier about simpatico and how yes. I've learned the lesson that people aren't Legos and it's not a matter of just, okay, she's gone. <laughs> now I'm going to plug this one in. It does not work. You, you can intellectualize no. it. You can imagine it. But as you know, Cheryl, having been through it, it doesn't work that way. It does not. And I knew what I wanted. I wanted that connection. I wanted that subtext, that emotional subtext that I call simpatico. I wanted to know that when I said A, she heard A, and when she said B, I heard B. You know, that it was just... It was Otherwise, why bother was my feeling. Well, that's true. <laughs> you're a woman, I'm a guy. You know, guys are always going to be trying. <laughs> it's just well, okay. Maybe that's you know, a no different choice. I mean, I could see dating, but I couldn't see ever doing a real full-on relationship. Got you. Without Got that, you. without knowing I could die with that person and live with that, you know. Yeah, I yeah. I really resonate with what you're saying. So fortunately, I I met her, Kate Mulgrew, the great Kate Mulgrew, um, knew of my situation. Because her husband, this gets really small world, was directing my second play called Life After Time about how to move forward. And she said, you need a wife. I'm going to find you a wife. And I, I didn't take her seriously. <laughs> That's I mean, so nervy. Find me a wife. <laughs> you know? And so she invited me to an opening of a play in 1990 that, she, that Kate was in with Christine. And I didn't, I didn't know it was a setup. I didn't know Kate's intention was to introduce me to her. And uh, after the play, we met, and I uh, overcame my initial faux pas of saying something inappropriate, because, again, I wasn't really, I was just being irreverent. And um, <laughs> she came, came to, why aren't you with Christine? And I, I looked at her, like, what are you talking about? And she took me to her and put me in a chair next to her and said, you must be with Christine. And thank God, because we started talking, and uh, we've been together ever since. I mean, it's Boy, it's I, remarkable. I, I had to I had to do without a friend like that, but I managed to work it out anyway. Well, <laughs> my, <laughs> as might have been a little golf, bit harder though. There's no pictures. There's no pictures on the scorecard. They say the number is the number. So you and I both got there, however it happened. However it happened, <laughs> but you know, it does take. I think. Uh, if you're really, if you're not trying to just shuffle the past aside and all of that, it does take right. someone special to be that second, that second person. And yes. um, oh, yes. you, you reminded me of a song I wrote at the time called "Lightning Striking Twice" because it kind of felt that unlikely that right. that I would love someone that passionately again, you know, that deeply again. Yes. Um, but I think it does require a lot of the other person because you haven't broken up with the first person. You, the relationship has changed a lot, but um, uh, she's certainly a part of me and my life and always will be. Of course, uh, of course. So, you know, that that's uh, an homage to our subsequent wives, I guess. Well, you have to be, as you say, you know, it took, Christine had to be a very unique person because, believe me, uh, there were uh, uh, other women 
that looked like I, my joke was like this. They'd come over, they'd check out the situation, and then they'd be running up Michael Avenue. <laughs> and I'd be standing there going, where are you going? I thought we were hanging out. Yeah. <laughs> I thought we really had a chance. And you realize they're looking at this situation going, you've got to be kidding me. The three children? I'm not taking this on. I mean, three children and, who and, lost their mother. Let's not forget that right. part, too. That's you right. have to be Let's able to be mother. with grief, right? Yeah. I mean, it's, it was, it's, again, and that's why ultimately I went, I got to write a play about this because this woman, this is incredible. I, I don't know that I'm capable of this. Mm. I don't know. And I mean, what do you I think? Say. What do you think uh, made that possible for her, if you were to have to guess? Timing. Hmm. We've talked about it a lot. The reality was she was very successful. She'd done all these great roles in all these great theaters around the country. I mean, she was truly talented. Came to Hollywood. Here's one for you. Okay, you might get a kick out of this. We're together now. We've been together a year, in the first year. And she's moved in. And we both get, because we're actors, both get residual checks in the mail. And... I say, what did you get? She goes, St. Elsewhere. And I open mine. I go, oh, my God, I got a St. Elsewhere, too. What episode did you do? She goes, Room with a View. Well, my episode was Room with a View. And we looked at each Uh, other. So we uh, were both on the same St. Elsewhere. And that was her first TV job ever. You see, she came to L.A. like within a week or two of Chick's death. And we didn't meet on the set because it wouldn't have been the right time to meet. I wouldn't have been ready to meet her. But it was almost as if, uh, you know, the forces were already at play. I remember Christine said to me one time, I don't know if it was a dream she had, but she really had the sense of checks encouraging her and welcoming her and, and, and sort of like thanking her for coming in. You know what? Same same thing with my wife. Really? Uh, yeah, when we met, she, she actually knew my first wife, but we didn't know each other, which is interesting. Uh, wow. <laughs> uh, and wow, she she said, um, I feel as if I've been, she's entrusted me with you. Hmm. Uh, it's that same kind of sense of that other person. And of course, that was so comforting because um, she wasn't, she wasn't in conflict with the presence of this other person that I loved. I think that's very right, helpful for right. you. It's like a connection instead of, it's not a competition. It's a connection. A connection. Absolutely. As you say, living with the, you know, let's face it. When someone dies, they go to a, on a pedestal. It just happens. To, a, to an extent. <laughs> if they weren't on yeah. it before. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Which it sounds as if both of our wives were, but beyond that, yeah. well, it's sort of they can never do anything hurtful or wrong again. You know, right. there's there's that in right. it. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And you really understand that you really understand the thing. Never speak ill of the dead. There's no reason to. I mean, <laughs> right, you know. right. Yep. It's uh, it erases these human uh, sometimes erases these human difficulties, doesn't it? 
Right. Not for right, everyone, right, I right. want to say. No, but and, no, and, and right, rightfully so. so um, there's some people we must never forget <laughs> for the evil they did. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. So if we had another hour, what I would be asking you about is the impact of um, early loss on your kids. We only have like about two more minutes, but uh, that's a whole other subject. I I, I think it's, I I, I want to tell you a story, and it's the best way to say it without making it personal to my children, but uh, in a a grief group that I was co-leading, a young person was talking about when the phone call came that their sibling had died. And the image that was presented so clearly was the, the father got the call. He hung up the phone. He turned to the mother and it shared the information. And the two of them, while she's standing there, collapsed together, leaving the child outside. Mm-hmm. a little bit. And I think that, you know, I, I, I'm sure a lot of ways I think I failed. I mean, we the, all the therapy and all that stuff was done. Play therapists were brought in, you know, constantly trying to address it. Um, I had the show. I had that place for myself, selfishly, to, to, to grieve. Um, uh, I don't know that I fully understood the impact on them because I was too busy trying to keep it all moving forward. I mean, but I, the I thing is, you did you, you did imprint for them. You know, I, I feel my kids have made something pretty great out of it, even though there's painful aspect, absolutely. But uh, you imprinted that it's okay to talk about. So I just want to really give yes. you that um, well, because you, I, I think did, it makes such say, a big difference. I, I remember saying to Jasper early on, you know, this is unfair. This is this is this is really unfair. And the only positive thing I can maybe say to you out of this whole thing is that just know that you're going to be stronger, deeper, and you have knowledge that those other kids, they don't. It's so, not, so it's, true. you don't want it, but you got it. So Yeah, yeah. But, well, you know, as a therapist, run, of but, course, I work with a lot of people that were not talked to about it, and it makes a big difference. Well, Paul, this has been a delight. Thank you so much for coming on today. Well, thank you I mean, so much for having me. I, I could talk about this stuff forever. I hope me I didn't too. ramble too much. To all you, <laughs> anyone wants to reach out to me, I'm more. available. <laughs> and and listeners, you can go to you can get in touch with Paul Link at link link 1948 at aol.com. Next week, I'll have Mason Summit, a musician who began expressing himself in music after the death of his father when he was 11. This has been Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. I look forward to being with you again next week for another meaningful conversation. Thank you so much for joining us for Good Grief. Please come back next Wednesday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time for another edition featuring your host, Cheryl Jones, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Have a meaningful week. Abre mi corazón.